This episode contains adult language and adult humor. Since when have trumpet players ever been considered adults? If you are easily offended by these types of conversations, consider switching to the oboe. Welcome to the Trumpet Gurus Hang podcast. I'm your host, Jose Johnson. My guest for this episode is Danny Falcone. Danny is a phenomenal player who is based in Las Vegas. Among his numerous accomplishments, he has most recently played and toured with Celine Dion and is a part of Lady Gaga's new jazz and piano show. Danny also holds down the lead book in Santa Fe and the Fat City Horns, a collection of some of Sin City's nastiest players. And I say nasty in the best way possible. So pour yourself a big glass, pull up a chair, and let the hang begin. All right, welcome to this week's episode of the Trumpet Gurus Hang, and I am here with Danny Falcone, and if you don't know Danny, you're going to get to know him today. Danny is an amazing player, and uh, I was actually, in to get get in the mood today, I was just jamming to some, some Santa Fe uh, and the Fat City Horns, and just uh, every time I listen to that, I just, uh, <laughs> I get chills, man. So, uh, yeah, Danny's a great player, a uh, great guy, and we're just going to get to know each other today because we've never met. This is our first time actually meeting. Yeah, it so, is. Uh, I'm excited about this. This is a genuine hang. So, uh, Danny, how's life down in uh, Vegas, man? Well, you know, it's uh, it's been a little strange since lockdown, that's for sure. All the work is gone. All the casinos dried up, and they just reopened. But at this point, you know, the social distancing thing is uh, – going to cause some problems trying to get back to work again. So we're all trying to figure out how we're going to do it and where it's going to happen. So in the meanwhile, we've been trying to do stuff online like everybody else, you know, just right. to keep things going. Right. Uh, so once the casinos open, uh, or you said they are open, but uh, are they, do they have like a, a, a phase-in plan for uh, putting shows, putting live shows out? Yeah, you know, there's no, um, there's nothing at the moment that I know of, of how they plan to do the shows. I know Cirque du Soleil is, um, sorry, my family just walked in. Uh, Cirque du Soleil just, just announced that they're not going back to work at least for some time, any of those shows. Mm -hmm. uh, I just don't know what's going to happen. You know, I'm with, we work a lot with Lady Gaga here in Vegas and um, she's got a 6,000 seat theater. And I don't know how they're going to do that. How are we going to get people in there? You know, what are we going to do? And, and, in order to do that, and for her, either she's going to have to take a huge cut in salary, right, if they have less people, or right. not perform at all. So I, I don't know how that's all going to play out. We're all kind of anxiously waiting to see what happens here. You know? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, playing on stage is, uh, you know, uh, depending on the on the room, I mean, you either have plenty of space or you have no space at all. So, yeah. yeah like with Santa Fe, you know, we play in a pretty intimate room. It's maybe 200, 250. Um, and so, you know, how are we going to, we're trying to figure all that out. We're in the middle of a bunch of the guys in the band have, have been researching how we could possibly do live streams for that and, mm -hmm. you know, keep things going and where we would orient ourselves so that we're still, you know, following the guidelines. And it's, uh, it's daunting, man, but you know, yeah. we'll get through it. it'll happen. You know, yeah. Innovation. Really there, man. So the way will be there. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, that, yeah, it's like, uh, thank God for the, the plexiglass shields around drummers. I think just everybody's going to be, uh, having their own little personal QB to, to stand in at some point, but yeah, for sure. 
but yeah. Uh, so uh, you were saying like you play, you're uh, you're doing the shows with uh, Lady Gaga. You're also doing. Uh, are you still doing the Celine Dion gigs? Well, not at the moment. Um, Celine did a. We did about a nine year run with her, both in Vegas and on tour around the world. And then um, that she decided to close shop here. I think this kind of a typical thing is after so many years, they don't want to have uh, too much fatigue of being right. you know around all the time. That was mm -hmm. a hell of a run. So I think what's going to happen is she's going to, um, they were going on tour, but the tour got canceled because of this. And then the word is that she's coming back to Vegas probably in 2021. Uh, so we'll see. I, I don't know what's going to happen with that either. I'm not sure. Everything's kind of up in the air. Yeah. Yeah. That's very true. So, I mean, you, but you're a, you're a lifer in Vegas. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I grew up here. Um, my dad moved here when I was a baby. And I grew up in Vegas and then I went away to school at USC and I was there for three years and then came back to Vegas because uh, I decided that, well, I was ill. That was the big reason I came back. I had to get some medical attention. And once I got back here, I just felt more, you know, it's more at home and I was already established here and I had work here. So it just kind of picked back up again and, I, and I've, I've stayed since. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, for people that don't know, uh, uh, Danny's father, uh, also was a very talented musician and uh so he, he was uh the musical director for uh frank sinatra correct right pianist and musical director yeah yeah awesome so you got to you got to hang around a lot of really cool people growing up that was a hell of a way to start let me tell you because i would go to every single time they were in vegas and that was like a real residency you know that everybody calls their stay here in vegas residency now but sinatra was here you know probably six times a year and uh, every time I would go to all the rehearsals and then a couple of the shows as a young kid, I was between like eight and you know, six and 16 kind of in that period. And um, yeah, I, I mean that hearing that, you know, Charlie Turner, lead trumpet player, mm -hmm. uh, actually gave me my first trumpet. Awesome. So that's how I got started. And yeah, it was uh, unbelievable man, listening to that kind of stuff all the time, and, you know, at the time that you don't understand the, the depth of what you're hearing, you know, you don't know the, the importance of it right. you know, at eight years old or whatever. But once I got it like 13, I started playing trumpet when I was 11, maybe just about 12. And then, and then it started to make sense to me a little more who, you know, Mr. Sinatra was and all of that. These musicians. Yeah. But yeah. it was already, it was already in there. You know, I got to hear it a long time. So, yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm sure you have an affinity to uh, that type of music. Yeah. That air. Yeah. Yeah, that and there, there's there's something about it, man. Just the the arrangements, the the energy of that. It's I mean, as opposed to you know today we we got a lot of energy in the music. I mean, like stuff you guys do with Santa Fe and uh, stuff that that's you know that's really driving, that's really kicking. But you know when when you had that big orchestra and those those amazing like you know the the Nelson Riddle arrangements, the you know greatest man, it's the yeah. best I've ever written in my opinion. It's the it's the greatest lead trumpet book ever written <clears throat> you know let alone everything else about it you know but as, as far as a trumpet player it just doesn't get any better than that you know it's so musical and so swinging and, yeah. and it's incredible yeah. yeah and i was fortunate enough to inherit that music library i actually have a tremendous amount of that original music oh. yeah that was bequeathed to my dad who then gave it to me so we actually have a show that may be going to broad it was going to go to broadway until this hit and now we're seeing if we can get back in there but it's a recreation of a, a concert, a Sinatra concert with all the original arrangements and a singer that is just 
the best there is. His name's Bob Anderson. And oh man! So yeah, it's called Frank the Man the Music, and it's it's amazing. Yeah. Oh, I hope that uh, that gets off the ground because that would be amazing to listen to. Yeah, oh. that's real cool. Yeah. So you think you'll do the show? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, that's the plan. I mean. We had, uh, it was all set up and arranged. The money was there. We had uh, Ava Price, who's an amazing uh, producer on Broadway. She's produced, you know, all many, many, many Tony award-winning musicals. So she was behind it and uh, was finding us a room and looked like everything was going to happen. And then this all broke. So yeah. we'll see how it all plays out once Broadway opens up again. Yeah. Well, I certainly hope so. I've, I, I promised my wife I'd take her to a show for her 50th birthday next year. And so, <laughs> so maybe it'll be that one. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. And you're in Pennsylvania. Is that where you are? Yeah, I'm in Pennsylvania. Yeah. So yeah, I'm not too far from Philly and, and New York and everything. So it's, you know, it's an easy drive or easy train ride or whatever you want to do. Sure. But uh, yeah. So uh, when you're, uh, when you're working, um, I mean, I know you have a lot of demands between, uh, you know, the, the kind of stuff you, get, you guys do with Santa Fe and the Fat City Horns, which is, you know, again, if people haven't listened to this, I can't say this enough. And you probably hear me say this another 10 times at least. Just check them out. You know, it, it's just killer, killer stuff. But you guys are kind of, and I don't say this in a negative way, you're all over the place. You know, the, the demands of that book, I mean, the, you know, the, from the funk to the Latin to, you know, you, you're, you're bouncing around a, a, a little bit. Uh, and I, I believe I remember reading something about you that you said about, uh, that was like the most demanding book that, that you have to play. Um, so, I mean, like in terms of transitioning between, uh, that level of high energy, uh, to, you know, to a gig like a, a, a Lady Gaga or a Celine Dion or, or one of the, the shows that you might be doing, uh, in one of the rooms. I mean, do you, do you feel like it's a it's a stretch for you to, to bounce back and forth. Do you have to do like a big mental readjustment or is it just kind of second no, nature now? Not really. I mean, I think that, um, you know, both, believe, I know it seems odd to think that Celine would have high energy stuff, you know, cause everybody's used to her with the ballet. Right. Yeah. But, but actually Celine really is, she wanted to be a rock and roll. So like she's into ACDC and you know, that kind of stuff. So uh, we do put a lot of high energy stuff in that show. So it was kind of a fun show to do because there was so much variety between orchestral type stuff and then, you know, high note stuff and, and funk. And I mean, it's, it, you'd be surprised if you actually saw the show. Mm -hmm. We did some Prince medley. We did, oh, you know, cool. so it was pretty happening, you know, playing wise, it was fun right. to do. So mm -hmm. see, it was similar, you know, nothing is as demanding as Santa Fe for sure. I mean, nothing. I and mean, Gaga's got a ton of hard stuff, but, it's spaced out, you know, there's mm -hmm. a couple of tunes where it's not. Santa Fe is just one after another. It's about an hour and a half of nonstop, just as hard as it can get stuff, you know. Yeah, just pounding. Yeah, yeah. So it's good because that, that kind of keeps things in shape. When we were working, you know, one night of that was equal to like three nights of any other gig. So, you know, it kept me in, in really good shape. Now mm -hmm. that I don't have it, it's, it's been a little <laughs> more difficult to keep up. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, I, that's I think there's so many people that that are facing that right now. It's like, oh my god, when the gigs finally start opening up, I hope I have the chops to play it. I'm gonna do it, I know. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, it's one thing to practice, you know. Like I'll practice a couple hours, but it's a whole nother thing when you have to play at that intensity level, you know. And so I try, I try to read through some stuff, or you know, I record myself and just, be, but it's still not the same, you know. I can tell, I can tell that the 
these muscles up here, you know, the ones that really dig in when you're tired, they start to start feeling it. You know, I can feel it up there when, uh, when things aren't working like they should. So we'll see how that all plays out when things come back to life here. So in Fat City, uh, who does the primary horn arrangements? Yeah, so there's two guys. There's uh, Dave Richardson, the keyboard player, and Nathan Tenoy, who's our uh, trombonist. And so they're the, they do the majority of the stuff. Uh, okay. The horns. Both ridiculous. I mean, unbelievable writing. Yeah, yeah. Some of the stuff there, it's just, it's mind-blowing. So I'm, I'm sure it's chop-blowing, too. <laughs> you know, Nathan and I have known each other now, ugh, I mean, more than 20 years, and have pretty much played together almost nonstop. So we're like brothers. So I razz him all the time, and he gets back at me by writing, you know, things. He keeps adding a ledger line, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's why every section I play with, I try to make sure I'm the one writing the charts. That <laughs> I control the dialogue. So. <laughs> but, uh, well, you know, you uh, I mentioned earlier that you went to USC. And um, so you had a chance to really to work with some really great people up there. I know uh, Gary Grant and Bobby Shue and some other people like that. Charlie Davis. Uh, man, that, that, that had to be a great time. Oh, man, you know it. I mean, that was... Uh... At that point in my life, I had kind of transitioned from wanting to be Conrad Gazzo to wanting to be Jerry Hay, you know, and Chuck Finley, you know, those guys. I, so I, I went to L.A. I had, had had the great pleasure and fortune to um, do a couple of recording sessions uh, with my father in L.A. And, and he introduced me to those guys early on. And, um, and I wanted it so badly that I just bugged the hell out of them until they agreed to teach me, you know. And, uh, and so I was able to, you know, be around those guys. And it was, that was most important was just hanging out and watching what they did, seeing how, you know, it was, it was mind blowing. I mean, absolutely incredible. Those guys are the greatest of all time, you know, at what they do. There's nobody better. Man. Yeah. I, I remember the first time I, I heard like really knew what, who, what I was listening to and listening to the, uh, the Jerry A. Horns, uh, it was off the wall. Uh, and I, I just heard, and it's like, this is like nothing I've ever heard before in my life. And, and just, I was hooked from that point on. Me too, man. Yeah. Groundbreaking. You know what he did and he's still doing, you know, changed the course of music. I mean, it, it was that important, especially for me, for guys like me and guys that like bands like Tower Power and, and Santa Fe and, you know, horn stuff. There wasn't, there was nothing like it. And certainly he just kept up in the game every single time I heard him do something. It just, you know, it was crazy. I'm still, yeah. that, I still listen to that stuff all the time. Yeah. All the time. When I drive, I put on, you know, I'll say, you know, play uh, Al Jarreau or play, you know, because that stuff is just so unbelievable. It's so yeah. great and classic. It never sounds old, never sounds tired, you know. Yep. Actually, I, I on my uh, Spotify playlist, I have a Jerry Hay playlist. Yeah. So it's just, I just go through and I just find, you know, all of the killer horn tunes, put it on there. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's, that's what I love to listen to. Uh, but I, what, what was Gary like as a teacher? I mean, I, I, I know Bobby and uh, I know his approach to stuff, uh, but I, I never really, I, yeah, I haven't had the pleasure yet of meeting Gary. I hope to one day have him on the show as well. But uh, you know, what, what did you pick up from him? Well, Gary's, first of all, he's one of the nicest people, you know, he just couldn't have be a nicer man. And he was so uh, generous with his time with me, you know, and I, and I appreciated that so much, but 
I was a young kid and I was studying with like six guys, you know, I was trying like a kid in a candy shop. Right. So I didn't really put in as much as I should have with each one because I was spread so thin, mm-hmm. you know, at that age at 18 years old, I didn't, you know, I just got, you know, Chuck, Chuck Finley and Jerry Hay and, you know, all these people, you know, I just wanted to be like them. And, and so I was studying with different people and couldn't really give a hundred percent all the time. But, but Gary um, was teaching me the Adam routine Mm-hmm. And uh, we worked out of the Bud Brisboy Trumpets Today book. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he was, you know, working on, at that time when I moved there, I, I could play, I was, a, I was a good player. I wasn't great. Um, I had a lot of problems, you know, I puffed one cheek. I, I'm not made to play the trumpet. I can tell you that. Mm-hmm. You know, physically, my chops are as bad as you can get for playing. My overbite, teeth are crooked, bottom teeth are jacked up, you know. And so I had a lot of bad habits. So those guys were kind of straightening me out, kind of getting all of that stuff that wasn't working right. They were trying to put it back together for me. Mm-hmm. So it was mostly fundamental stuff that we were working on, you know. Yeah. But yeah, he yeah, just couldn't be greater. And just it, it's osmosis with those guys, just being around them, you know, hearing that sound that they get. There's nothing like it, man. I mean, it's just it was incredible as a young guy to be around that and hear that all the time. Well, you know, there's there's a lot to be said about being in the midst of things like that. I mean, um, I I I I can pretty much bet my bottom dollar that you've worked your ass off to to accomplish what you've accomplished in your life. Uh, Nothing was handed to you. But there is certainly something to be said about being in the positions that you were in um, where you were exposed to really high caliber musicians and, and quality music your entire life. And, and even if you're not paying attention to it, some of those things, they just get ingrained in your psyche. Uh, yeah. And if you take it. Listen, I'm the first to admit it. You know, my, being the son of my father was a great advantage to me because I was able to be around the best of the best all the time as a kid, not understanding it, but, but, but absorbing it, you know? Mm -hmm. And then when I got to be 15, I started working on the strip. I would go to high school and then I would go to the the strip and do a show. I'd play fifth trumpet with Jerry Lewis or Rita Moreno or, you know, whomever. Right. Right. Yeah. That was my father without a doubt. If it wasn't for him, I wouldn't have had that opportunity. Um, But he always told me like, you, if you don't work at it, or if you come in and you, you suck, you're done. That's it. I don't mm-hmm. care if you're my son or not. So he right. had an unbelievable work ethic, my dad. Mm-hmm. And he tried to instill that in my brother and I. My brother's a phenomenal drummer, great, great guy. And, um, and so, yeah, we worked our butts off. I mean, there's no doubt. I mean, you have to. There's no getting around it on trumpet. You can't, you know, <laughs> just because somebody hands you something, you know, you either make it or you don't. So. Yeah. Yeah, you know, exactly. I had to do the work, but yeah, I'm super fortunate that that's how my my musical career began. It was, you know, being being around great people and hearing that and learning from them, just by osmosis. You know. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I'm I'm sure that there are a lot of things that you picked up that were just not related to, you know, the technical side of things. You know, like, like the 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 work ethic and things like that. I mean, I know for me that was always a big thing. Um, whether it be in music, uh, you know, my, my main portion of my career, like for the past 30 some years, uh, the, the thing that I did the most was I was a martial arts teacher uh, and just being around people that are just such high quality 
uh, you start to pick up on the things about their attitudes about life and, and their approach to the things that they do. So um, I mean, like what what do you think is like one of the most uh, impactful things that you picked up from, you know, either your dad or from from some of the guys that you're hanging out with at that time? Yeah, well, you know, in Vegas, I think I've talked about this before with others, but it was a different. Well, let me let me start with this. I would say the first thing was my dad. I learned a lot about character and integrity. That was like the big thing. And, and he never talked about it, but I saw it. You know, my dad was the kind of guy that would stand up for his musicians. You know, if somebody was being mistreated, he would never allow it. You know, he would. Um, in fact, I watched. I was on the gig when he quit a job because the celebrity was disrespecting his lead alto player who he had brought out of retirement, right? To do this certain gig. Mm -hmm. This celebrity who I won't mention was being extremely disrespectful. And my dad was making a huge amount of money with this person and quit on the spot. Said, I will not, I won't work with you. Like, you know, you're gonna be like this, I'm done, I'm done. And so, you know, that doesn't happen very much. You don't see somebody sacrifice something that's, you know, so valuable out of principle, right. you know? So right. Yeah. That for me was a big, you know, I learned a lot from him. And then Tommy Perello, who was my trumpet teacher in Las Vegas, you know, he taught me a tremendous amount about balance. You know, his whole thing was everything is balanced, right? So if you're, I mean, just we, th this, this carried through with life skills, but in trumpet, he would say, you know, if you're practicing an hour a day loud, then go practice an hour a day soft. If you're playing for two hours, go rest for two hours. You know, it's a, it's a yin and a yang. It's a constant balance. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, but he taught me that about, about life and, and being in a, in a musical environment, how to, you know, just, just watching him, how he behaved around others, you know, as a super intense lead trumpet player, he was super kind and, you know, never, you'd never know his cat. You never know what he could do. Right. He, he mm -hmm. wouldn't just do it to show people what he, he would keep it all in. And if it, if it called for it, he would let it out. But he wasn't an ego guy. He wasn't somebody that tried to, you know, promote himself above anybody else. You know, those kind of things really stuck with me. Um, I, I felt I learned a lot just about life with these people, you know, how to treat other people and how to get along with people, you know. So that that was super important, watching how they interacted in, in that realm, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, those are those are huge lessons. And, yeah, those are things I think everybody needs to know. Uh, yeah, that, those are the keys to success anywhere in life. But uh, it, with the, the shows in, in Vegas, I mean, I, I know that there uh, there's a period where the work really dried up. Uh, you know, a lot of the rooms stopped having the bands, the, the larger, larger acts. Um, you know, how how did you manage that time? How did you navigate that? Sure. Well, what happened was when I went away to USC, um, things were going great, right? A lot of work in Vegas. And then while I was there, the, the city, basically, the Musicians Union went on strike because the Tropicana Hotel decided they were going to go to taped music for their show rather than have a live orchestra. So the Musicians Union struck, all this happened, and basically they... The, the hotels had more money and time and wore them out and basically bankrupt the union. And eventually they had, they succumbed and, and, and all, all these shows started going to tape music. So when I came back home from being in school, there were no more, there weren't many gigs, you know, mm -hmm. and there weren't a lot of musicians left here. They, they had kind of had to go do other things, become realtors or leave town, go to LA, whatever. 
So the only thing that was left when I got back were lounges, right? So the lounges are, provide free entertainment. You can walk right. in, sit down, have a drink, whatever, and there's usually a band. And I was fortunate enough, uh, the first one that I did was a, a fun little thing, and I became the musical director for it, and I learned how to program synths, and, and uh, you know, I got onto like digital performer and learned all of that multi-tracking and all that stuff. And, and so I, I learned a lot about technology. So that was kind of cool. I played trumpet also in it. And I, you know, tried to, like we did Earth, Wind and Fire and stuff like that, trying to keep my chops up. But really the, it, there wasn't a whole lot of that. And uh, that lasted for about two years with that band. And then I got fortunate to fall into a band called Diane Diaz and the Big Fish, which was kind of like a smaller version of Santa Fe and the Fat City Horns. Very intense, really hard arrangements. Um, in fact, many of the members of our band now were in that band at one point or another. <clears throat> and that band really helped launch. Uh, that's how I got my first road gig with Tom Jones uh, was because of that band. Uh, he, his musical director would come out and watch our band when they were in town. And over the course of a couple of years, he, he really took a liking to me and I auditioned. And then it was unfortunate event for my friend Dan Miller happened. He was playing trumpet with Tom and he threw his back out, mm. called me and I went in and, and that's how it all started for me with, with Tom. So, yeah. but if it wasn't for the lounges and, and, you know, having that showcase, I probably never would have gotten that gig. Mm -hmm. So that yeah. was kind of a, a blessing in disguise, you know? Yeah. Yeah. yeah it works together. So, I mean, I know you said that, uh, you know, with the, with Celine that you, you did some, some touring with her, uh, are there any other acts that you've you've done uh, a lot of road work with, or have you primarily been been in Vegas? No, I've done a lot. I mean, Tom was uh, I was with Tom two and a half years, and most of that was touring. We went all over the world. You know, we spent all summers out in Europe and and uh, Australia, New Zealand. Uh, that was incredible. So that was a really cool. And then I spent a lot of time with uh, Paul Anka, touring with Paul Anka on and off, did a lot with him. And then, yeah, then uh, Bette Midler. I worked with Bette Midler for a couple of years and did some touring with her as well as we had a show in Vegas that ran, which was cool. And uh, a couple other acts like Martin Navera, the guy from the Philippines, toured with him for a while. And then Celine, we did a lot of touring with Celine. Um, yeah. yeah, most mostly every summer we would go out on tour. You know. Now, how does that work with your with your uh, house gigs? Because uh, I mean, I remember having a conversation with Wayne Bergeron about uh, like when you're entrenched in the the LA studio scene, you you become somewhat hesitant about taking road gigs because you know when you're gone, you know you stop getting the calls. So, how how did that work for you in uh, in Vegas? Yeah, well, a cool one of the man, what a, another blessing was I got this job with a show called Jersey Boys, mm -hmm. and that ran for. I want to say it was like eight years and they allowed me to sub out 50% of the time. So what would happen is when Celine would come to town, I would sub out and do that. And then in the summers I would go on tour and, and between the two, it ended up being just about 50%. And so it worked out perfectly. So I could do that. And, and uh, that way I was, when I would come back home, I'd have a job. And then when something came into town like Bet or Celine or whatever, I could sub it out. And it was really a, a incredible uh, flexibility and, and blessing for that, man, or else I would have been in big trouble, you know, because neither one, you know, I would have gone nuts if I had to play Jersey Boys 52 weeks a year every night. You know, I, I would have gone 
a little bananas. I needed the break, you know. Right. And so uh, as much as I loved it, I'm not saying anything negative about it, but right. just doing yeah. the same thing all the time, you yeah. start to go crazy, you know. So it really was a great job for this, something like that. It really allowed me that kind of flexible schedule that I needed to do the other things. Mm-hmm. So that worked out great. Yeah. What's the craziest show you've had to do? <laughs> and in what way? <laughs> <laughs> well, you pick the way. <laughs> Jeez, I don't know. Um, crazy. Well, I did a show called Storm at the Mandalay Bay. And it was like Ricky Martin's people put it together. This was like 99, 2000, right around 2000, right when it came off of Tom Jones, actually. And uh, it was crazy in that. Okay, well, the band was great. And that's how I ended up meeting Jerry Lopez, the leader of Santa Fe and the Fat City Horns. He was the musical director for it. So he put the band together. And I was fortunate enough to get the trumpet chair on it. Um, That band, the horn section, we're only three horns, but we were integral into the show. So we were moving all the time. We were actually part of the show. And that theater had probably, oh, I don't know, 80 foot ceiling, right? It was massive. And so they built these, these, the sets were built into the theater itself. So there was a ramp that would go from the stage about maybe 30 feet in the air and then have a little platform up there that we would play on at times. We'd have to navigate this thing without any handrails or anything. And it was barely wide enough to walk up, you know, so in the dark and all the noise, there were many chances for all of us. to. (laughs) They had a a mechanical palm tree that probably went 50 feet in the air uh, and out over the crowd. And they had the three horn players sitting at the top of this thing as they moved it out on an arm like this. And we had no, no, no safety at all. We were hanging on. (laughs) It was yeah, it was kind of nuts, man. I mean, there were plenty of times where we thought, yeah, this is it, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it was, it was cool, man. That was a really great show. In, in musically, it was great because Jerry yeah. put together and we had, um, we had uh, oh, God, now I'm sax player with, with Jerry Hayes' group. And now I'm, I'm so embarrassed. That I'm, uh, Larry Williams? Yeah, Larry. So Larry came in and did a lot of the arranging for us. He was on site, so I got to hang with him and watch what he did and yeah, musically, that show was incredible. I mean, it was really great. And it was because of that show that I ended up really getting Santa Fe uh, because Jerry got to know me and my playing. And then I was able to kind of, it just kind of worked out that I worked into the band when somebody left. So uh, that sounds absolutely insane. That was crazy. <laughs> it was wild, man. Oh, man. So did you, I mean, did you ever, uh, you know, going back to, to I keep going back to the Sinatra thing, did you ever get a chance to actually just like sit in with the band or play with the band at all? I played once. I played once with him um, at the Riviera in Vegas one time. Um, and that was, I mean, you know, what can you do? It's just craziness. I was really young. I was, I want to say I was like 18 or 19 when I did that. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't remember much about it because I was so nervous. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I was just sitting on the fourth trumpet book. I was a fifth, fourth or fifth, whatever it was. And uh, man, I was just scared out of my mind. You know, it's Frank Sinatra, you know, and it's, it's yeah, just yeah. Uh, But yeah, no, I, uh, you know, he carried, and, and that would have been, certainly would have been something that my dad wouldn't do. He wouldn't put me on that band. You know what I mean? That would look wrong, you know? Right. Uh, there were plenty of guys. <laughs> I was not in that caliber at that point. And, you know, so certainly it wouldn't have been right. But to put me on a fifth trumpet part for one one show, that was cool. I was able to do that, you know. Um, yeah, it was Sinatra, in my opinion, is still the greatest singer of all time. Um, and that music is so iconic and difficult 
to try to reproduce it the way that it should be played. I mean, you hear it all the time and sometimes it's difficult to listen to, you know, because yeah. you know what it should be like. Mm -hmm. So every time I have the opportunity to play that book now, I, I really try my best to get into that mindset and honor, you know, the guys that came before me. Cause last thing I want to do is step all over it or, you know, embarrass <laughs> myself by doing yeah. something I shouldn't yeah. do. So I put a lot of time in when it's time to get ready for, to play that show. I really try to, to dig in and listen and, and emulate. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that, uh, that time, man, there were just so many, I mean, there, there's still a lot of great trumpet players in the world. I'm, you know, I'm not, not taking away from anybody, but, um, like when you think about the, the talent that was in Las Vegas, um, you know, during that period, you had just some absolute bulls and yeah. It was the best. There, there, yeah. There, there was, and I, I've said this many times and, and I actually was just listening to your interview with Wayne um, and Wayne talked about this, that the, you know, the lead trumpet players in Las Vegas and during that time were some of the best in the world, if not the best in the world, because what they had to do was so demanding. And not only was the show difficult, but they'd have to do the show two times, six days a week, right? Some mm -hmm. shows more. Tommy Perello was doing six shows a day in the height of Vegas, six shows. And if you could hear one of those shows, I promise you, <laughs> you'd go, oh man, no way. You know, it's just yeah. ridiculous endurance. And I don't know how anybody could do six, but he's that kind of guy. He's just, you know, one of the greats of all time. But every, all those guys, you know, John Harner was here. Uh, Bobby Shue was here. Roger Ingram's mm -hmm. been here. Cat um, uh, Anderson was here. Um, Gazzo actually played in Vegas for a while. Um, yeah, a lot exactly. of, I mean, just monstrous, monstrous lead trumpet players. And uh, Mike Paulson, I don't know if you know Mike, but another monster trumpet player. Um, lots and lots of guys were just, you know, here and, and doing things and, and, they, and beneath the radar. So guys didn't, you know, it wasn't on records, right? So people aren't, weren't hearing it. But if you came to see the show, you, how the hell is that happening? You know, how are these guys doing this stuff, you know? And they play everything, piccolo, trump, like the, the Follies Reserve, the Follies show at the, I think it was Follies at the Trop, had everything from, you know, piccolo trumpet to lead trumpet to classical trumpet. I mean, you had to do everything and right back to back to back to back. And tough, man, real tough. Yeah, yeah, I, I think the worst gig I ever had was just doing a circus gig, you know, and that was, you know, a lot of the, the just play, 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 and, and you never know what's coming up next, you know, bouncing around from style to style. and. Um, I, I did a summer of that and said, okay, <laughs> that's good. But I mean, I couldn't imagine, uh, like you said, especially back in the heyday when, when you're doing those, uh, you know, like you know, said about Tommy doing, doing six shows a day. Oh my God. Yeah. I don't know, man. Honestly, I just, that kind of endurance. And, and so, and those guys were playing big equipment too. You know, this wasn't yeah. like, like now where, you know, myself and some other guys have tried to really try to become more efficient, find stuff that plays itself almost, you know, mm -hmm. these guys were playing like, you know, Tommy was playing a, a Benj 5X, mm. right? With a, uh, what did he have? Either a 19 throat or a 21 throat, something like that. Holy cow. Mouthpiece. Yeah, man. I mean, <laughs> it's like, it's inhuman. I have his horn. Okay. This is a true story. So when he, back in the nineties, he decided to make a change. He'd played that horn his, basically his whole career. So I had a Bach Sterling Silver 37 that was really good. And he played it and he loved it. And he said, I'll tell you what, I'll trade you 
right? So I thought, oh my God, I'm gonna have Corello's 5X, man. It's on every, like Woody Herman, Stan Kenton, Elvis, Harry James, all those recordings was this horn. So I said, yeah, I didn't even think twice. I took it. And I tried for a year to play that horn. No possible way. I mean, it was so big and open. There was no resistance in that horn at all. None. You know, and I think to myself, how the hell did he do that? He's not, he's, a, he's my size of a guy too. He's yeah. not a big guy. And he played that thing, you know, he'd blow the walls down with that all day long and never get tired, you know, I've, baffling to me how you could have that kind of, of endurance. But, you know, I guess growing up doing it every day and, you know, you don't know the difference. Yeah. They get used to it. But God almighty, what a sound, you know, and that's probably why, because they had this huge equipment you know, big throat and he was putting a ton of air through and boy, oh boy, man, it would, it was, it was something to hear. Let me tell you. Yeah. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouthwatering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, I know when I was younger, I used to play on uh, really big equipment and kind of started to, to tone it down in the past few years, trying to be more efficient, you know, like you said. But also, I mean, for and obviously I don't know as much or have as much experience as someone like Tommy, but for me, I think the biggest difference was that playing in my younger days, uh, I was trying to get a sound that went like that you know, to, to fill the room that way. And then now where most of my gigs are, you know, I'm playing in a funk band and it's be on the mic because there's no way you're going to outplay the rhythm section in those situations. So it's just trying to keep the sound compact and, and unidirectional as, as opposed to omnidirectional. Yes. So and that's, you know, it's so funny, man, because that's all I've done since. Okay. So like in Vegas, when I was doing the lounges, okay. So before that I was playing, a Benj, I was playing like a 3X or a Clickio 1S2. And I was playing a Bob Reeves with a 26 drill, you know, big. And I was trying to sound like Gaza. I was just trying to take down the room. So then when I started getting in the lounges, the, the pit bosses, I'll never forget, this is true, we're at the New York, New York. And so the stage is, in, is like, imagine the stage is here and then the casino is straight in front of you, right, right. past. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we were playing, you know, Cecilia Noel and the Wild Clams. We were playing Earth, Wind, and Fire. We were playing Tower of Power. And, you know, there's a lot of screaming trumpet stuff. And the pit boss came in and he came up to the leader and he, and he pointed at me. He goes, Can you have him turn around? And behind me was a red curtain. Uh -huh. So, like, he literally wanted me to play into the curtain. Like, they don't want to hear it out there. They don't want, because that, that, that is carrying where the rest of the music isn't. So, somebody's sitting there playing roulette and hearing a bunch of high G's. You know, they're getting yeah. so I had to figure out how to take my sound and do this. And that's what I, that's the evolution of what I've done since that was probably 96. Mm -hmm. And so I went to a Bobby shoe trumpet. Right. And then I right. and worked on that. And then I got on Tom Jones's band and I had figured out how to do this. And now I needed to go back to this again. Right. So I went into a real tailspin, but when I got off that band and I started just honing down, honing down, I, and especially with Santa Fe and having to play that kind of stuff. There's no way you can play like, I've had a lot of incredible trumpet players come and play that book and 
you know, they all feel the same way. Like there's just no way you can't do that all night mm -hmm. to get killed. You got to learn how to do this. So that's what I've done. And I've finally gotten to the point where I've figured out for me, the right equipment, the right balance of resistance. But now with the Sinatra gig coming, I've actually, I just bought a Burbank bench 2X and mm. that gets a little more of this, which is kind of what I need to play, you know, Frank Sinatra music. When I try to play it on my con constellation, it's just, it, it's getting out there, but it's not spreading in the section. So it doesn't give a lot of confidence to, to my other players. You know what right. I mean? Mm -hmm. Or to me, because I don't hear it behind the horn. Mm -hmm. So I'm actually now at this point in my life, beginning to try to open up again a little more and get away from this, you know, mm -hmm. because it starts to be a crutch. You know, if you don't have a, a monitor or a shield in front of you, and yeah. you're doing this, bam, two tunes in, if you can't hear, you're done, you know? Yeah. So that's my dilemma at the moment. That's what I've been doing since this lockdown. I've been trying to work at opening my sound back up again and trusting that it's, you know, that it, it's there rather yeah. than try to take somebody's head off, you know, 300 yards in front of me. Yeah. So are you, are you playing on a Constellation now? Yeah, that's what I've been playing on for the last like eight or nine years, a 36B. Mm. Yeah. Oh, man. Oh, it's a great horn, man. If you get a good one, they're unbelievable, you know. Yeah, I uh, there was uh, someone locally who had one, and uh, I was just like a day late getting to them. <laughs> I got about nine of them, so if you want them, let me know. <laughs> I might take you up on that one. Uh, yeah, I, my my high school band director had a had a constellation, and I remember him letting me borrow it every once in a while to play. And there's just something about it. I I love that horn. He played that in the Jet Tone Studio B. Sure, I had the same mouthpiece. Yeah, back in the day, Studio B. Yeah. Oh man, those those are good old days. Uh, so. So speaking of gear, uh, so you're playing Constellation. What are you using for your for your mouthpiece? Well, my mouthpiece is something that I make. Um, I, we've designed it. I have a, a buddy of mine named Kevin Delaney. And he yeah. and I, about, oh, I don't know now, six years ago or something, met and decided that we wanted to make some mouthpieces. And so we partnered up with uh, Peter Pickett to mm -hmm. actually make them. We did the designs and then over the years, you know, kind of refined them and, and so on and so forth. So I finally feel like I've made a, a piece for me that's really efficient, gets the sound I want for the most part, you know, and nothing's ever perfect, but, but it's been a, a really fun process to learn. And we've actually made mouthpieces for a lot of guys like Brian McDonald and the Airman and Note and mm -hmm. Kevin Burns and Seraphine Aguilar and a bunch of guys mm -hmm. we've made mouthpieces for and seems they seem to really like them, you know? So we were originally going to launch it and make it a company that kind of goes back and forth depending on, you know, the, the wind, but, uh, but we still make them for ourselves and, and I'm always kind of refining things, you know? Yeah. But that all started with Jim new, actually it started with Billy Hodges. You ever hear that name? No, no. Jim new. I know, but not Billy. Yeah. Billy was the first lead trumpet player in the first airman of note. And oh, okay. he wasn't, I mean, he was like one of those, freaky incredible trumpet players he ended up in vegas played all the shows at the riviera he was the house lead trumpet player and billy helped me when i was in high school i would go over to his house and he would we would take my mouth back i had uh, reeves 41s that's what i was playing at the time and i'd say yeah billy i, I want to do you know i want to sound like this or that hey give it to me you know credgy old dude you know and he yeah. his glasses on and get the micro lathe out and then he had like a broken um uh, uh screwdriver Right. He had kind of <laughs> and that was his tool, man. But the guy was so good. He knew 
like he, he would listen to me play and go, no, give it back. He'd give it to me and then he'd just take a little metal off of here and try that. Oh yeah, that feels good. Yeah. You know? And so we, we, um, we started making mouthpieces then that was, God, I was 16 maybe. And then that developed until Billy passed away. And then I went to Jim New, who's like, you know, probably one of the most incredible guys on the planet for anything uh, trumpet. I mean, he knows so much about everything. He's done everything. He's built, you know, he worked for Zig Cancel. He worked for right. Benj, all these people. He knows everything. And when it comes to mouthpieces, he's, he's just unbelievable. So he helped me. We made a whole bunch of stuff. And then from that, you know, I started making my own and, and that's how the kind of the evolution of the whole thing has, has happened. But I still see Jim, you know, I still go to Jim because he's just so knowledgeable. Yeah. <clears throat> Such a great cat. Yeah. Well, there, I mean, there are some really amazing guys out there in terms of the, the manufacturing side and the tech side that it just blows your mind. You know, he, Greg Black is like, another guy that's unbelievable. Yeah. And, and nice, you know, such nice people, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. So I, I worked on, you know, just refining my piece to create the right feel for me, especially after getting the Santa Fe gig, because it is just so demanding. And while I could get through it, I'd get through it, but then I'd be hurt for two days, you know? Right. I just didn't want that anymore. I wanted to figure out something that would allow me to play like that, but not get, not get hurt, you know? And so now at this point, the way that I've, put it together for me some nights they never feel good my chops almost never feel good but there are some nights where i'll play the gig and then get done and be like well, i could go do that again you know and i i attribute that not not just to having you know strong chops but to having the right equipment for the job you know mm -hmm. and i feel like i finally for me got that balance together you know i can do that now yeah well, that's cool all right well we're gonna come to this uh segment of the show i um I call these the speed studies. And uh, so it's rapid fire round. So I'm just going to throw some questions out at you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Warm up your brain. Uh, they're they're going to be all over the place. So uh, let's just see what you come up with. Okay. All right. Uh, first question. Who's the biggest influence on your life that is not a trumpet player? Oh, my dad. Okay. I figured that one. Uh, what's your favorite book? Oh, my God. Um, oh, you're going to rapid fire me on that, huh? Really love To Kill a Mockingbird. Okay. Um, what's the worst movie you've ever seen? She's oh, almighty. Um, uh, Demolition Man. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, that, that was, that was not a great movie. <laughs> um, I, although I did like Wesley Snipes' hairdo in that one. That was, <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you weren't a trumpet player, what would you want to do? Build houses. Okay. Uh, what is your favorite drink? Arnold Palmer. Mm, yummy. Uh, okay, you could have a dinner party. You're having a dinner party. You can invite any three living people. They don't have to be musicians. Any three people in the world to be at that dinner party. Who would you want to have there? Wow. Um, they have to be alive. That's what you're saying. That, yep. They have to be alive. Oh, God almighty. How are you going to ask me that? Probably former President Obama. 
Oh my God, this is tough, man. You know what I think I would do? I think I would put Donald Trump, Obama, and George Bush together and just see what happens. That's what I would do. You know, uh, I had this conversation with, with our mutual friend, Charles Hargett, and uh, I told him, my response to his was, uh, I would like to have Obama, Trump, and Bob Costas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you can, have a, you can just have a head-to-head -head and then have Costas do the play-by-play. -play. So, I like that. Uh, okay. Uh, same same scenario you're going to throw a dinner party you can invite any three people but they are no longer with us so you can bring any three people back from from history who would they be uh clark terry maynard ferguson and conrad gazo oh man yeah that's who i'd want to talk that would be some party yeah absolutely a lot of sound there yeah <laughs> okay lacquer plated or raw I think lacquer. Yeah. I can't do lacquer. My my acid eats through it. Just, Is that right? Yep. Yeah, yep. I don't have any of those problems, no. Yeah. Um what's your favorite quote? Oh, um for God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. That is a very timely quote. Uh, speaking of which, what's your greatest fear? Wow. Um, I don't even want to. I don't even want to give it any any. I don't want to give it any energy. I'm sorry. I'm not going to give you that. Okay. Okay. That's good enough. Um, you could only have one superpower. Mm. What would it be? I want to fly. Yeah. yeah. I've dreamt about that my whole life, actually, as a kid and everything. I've always dream I always have dreams that I'm flying. Yeah. Soaring above the band. Hmm? Oh yeah. 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 Soaring above yeah, right. <laughs> my wife said healing. I forgot. Yeah. He I, I have had that too. I, I, I to be able to heal. That would be yeah. That'd be yeah. Cool. That's that's uh that's a popular one, I think, with a lot of people, too. Um, what aspect of trumpet playing do you consider uh, to be the most overrated? What aspect? Maybe, you know, my God, that's tough, man. That's a tough one. Boy, oh boy, you caught me there. I, I don't know, actually. Um, maybe, you know, technical prowess. It might be a little, I mean, depending on what you're doing, you know, I mean, for what I do, it's not as important that I have a killer triple and double tongue as it is that I have a good sound and a good foundation, but that's part of it. So I don't, you got me, damn it, you stopped me. <laughs> overrated. I think that's all important. That's the thing. Like, I can't think of one thing about trumpet playing that I wouldn't want to work on. I, I don't know. I'm sorry. Got me again. Damn, yeah. I'm a bad guest, man. Uh, no, you're not. No, you're not. You appear on that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so here's the flip side of that. What aspect of trumpet playing do you think is the most underrated? Oh, I think um, 
Well, nowadays, I think sound. I think sound is underrated because most people don't have to worry about their sound so much because everybody's playing in mics and it's amplified. And all. I mean, like personal sound, you know, your, your own thing. You know, you'll hear a lot of guys, they sound alike. Like sometimes it's hard to tell who's playing. Like, like you know, as a kid, like when I heard Miles Davis, right? Dizzy Gillespie, or I heard uh, Bernie Glow, or I heard, you know, um, uh, any of those guys. That, that's, you knew in two, two notes, I can tell you who that is, right? That yeah. personal sound, that's missing in a lot of guys today. I hear guys that they all could be somebody else. Like, well, that, and, I, and I, I don't take this the right, the wrong way. I don't mean it like this, but like a lot of Yamaha trumpets, like some, some people when they play a Yamaha trumpet sound like they're playing a Yamaha trumpet. It doesn't sound like them. It's, it's the sound of the horn. Right. Does that make sense? And some people play Yamahas and you would never, I mean, it's, I just mean that that's how I hear it sometimes. I'll, I'll go, oh, that's a Yamaha. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Where I'll hear Wayne play it. Now, that doesn't sound like Yamaha. It sounds like Wayne. You know what I yeah. mean? So I think the, what's missing in a lot of younger guys is, is a personality in their sound. Something that makes you go, oh, that's Jim New or whoever. You know, you know immediately that's who that person is. Yeah. Sound a yeah. little homogenous. You know, and, and I, that's, that's what, I'm, what I feel. Yep, I'm with you on that one. I'm probably going to get a lot of shit from Yamaha about that. I don't mean that they're horny. Yeah. I just uh, mean that they're so good, you know, they're, yeah. they have a certain sound to them. And if you don't change that, it's going to dictate it, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, uh, and, and the same could be, you know, said in some in many cases, like, you know, for like the box. Right. You know, so for so many long, you know, that's why everybody wanted to play a box. If you were in this section, you had to play a box so that you, because of the sound characteristics of the horn. But, uh, yeah, I, I agree with you on that. Well, like when you hear Jerry Hay play a Bach, or you hear Jerry Hay play a Clickio, it sounds like Jerry Hay. Yeah, you don't know that that's a Bach or a Click. You just know that's Jerry. Yeah, you know what I mean? that's what I mean by that. Yeah, Bobby exactly. A Yamaha, you don't know it's a Yamaha. It's just that's Bobby Shue. It's no matter what yeah. he's playing. Yeah, that's yeah. that's what I'm trying to get at. Yeah, absolutely with you on that. Yeah, and I, and I think that's that's a like you said, it's an underrated thing because um, and and, and to, for some. To some degree, I think it, it's uh, instilled, uh, for better or worse, in uh, the education system, where uh, you know teachers have a, a sound concept and they want every you know they want people to have this this somewhat like you said homogenous sound, so that you know uh, it, you know well you know you don't want your sound to be too bright, you don't want your sound to be too dark, you know you want to be right here in the middle, which. Eh, you know it's okay, but but you then it lacks the personality. You know you're you're changing who you are. Uh, that that is what's coming out of the horn. You know the scent because like you know you you uh, studied with uh, with Gary and you know doing the uh, the Adam stuff. You know the sound starts up here. You know, and so uh, if you don't have a if you don't have a personal sound, then that means that you're you're losing a you've lost the connection from from here and here your heart. Right. Uh, it's not coming out the horn. Exactly. So, yeah, I'm I'm with you on that. So Yamaha. Sorry. Yeah, no, that's, that's I could have said anybody. I could have yeah, said yeah, whatever. Yes. No, any but, but, horn that has a certain sound to it, if you don't make it your own, it's going to sound like that. That I just yeah. thought of Yamaha. Yeah, yeah. Well, the backpedaling here is unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. All right. So you can go back in time. Yeah. <laughs> and correct that last statement. Now you can go back in time and give yourself one piece of advice about music. Uh, okay. Yeah. Well, I would go, I would do this. I would say, 
for me personally, I would say stop looking at music and start listening. Like, don't read so much. Do more here. You know, I grew up doing shows and on big bands and all. It was everything was, you know, I'm reading everything. I became a, I tried to become a master reader and all of that. And I didn't spend as much time as I would have liked just transcribing, you know. I mean, I'm, I, if, I, if I could do it all again, I'd be a bebop trumpet player. That's what I love. I mean, I listen to that. That's, you know, what I hear in my head. But I never spent the time just doing, tra I did some, but not nowhere near what I should have done looking back now. Um, because I was trying to be a lead trumpet player. I was trying to work, you know, commercially, do all of the things that I needed to, to have those skills. And I regret that. I would love to um, just like my, my friend Rashawn Ross, man, that guy, if you could hear him play bebop, like he play, he sounds like Clifford Brown. It's ridiculous. Oh, yeah. it, and he can just like, he'll go home and transcribe whatever. He'll transcribe a piano solo. You know, his ears are just ridiculous. And you know, that's what I'm, I wish I had done more of. I wish I had spent more time doing that. If I could go back, I would tell myself, okay, yeah, you can, you can do all that. Now just work on this, you know? Yeah. Okay, cool. And, uh, same kind of scenario, you know, you're able to time travel, you're going to go back and talk to your younger self. Uh, what advice would you give yourself about life? Uh, I think I would say, don't be, uh, as a, as a young person, don't be, oh boy, that's tough. Cause I, I don't want to sound weird, but I learned, my mom died when I was young. I learned a lot about appreciating every day and don't take people in your life for granted. Those are the normal things, but, but I was fortunate enough mm -hmm. by an unfortunate circumstance. I was fortunate enough to learn that early on. I think I might say it's okay to enjoy life a little more. You know, it doesn't always have to be, you know, stress and you got to do something every minute. It's okay to sit back, take a day and enjoy yourself. You know, I've learned that as I've gotten older, but as a young man, I didn't do that. I was constantly working and I work 12 hours a day, seven days a week, you know, because I wanted to accomplish something. And in doing that, I might have missed a little bit of some of the, the more relaxing things that are important. It's balance, you know, I should have listened right. to Corello a little more. I, I have it now. I do it now. Mm -hmm. I'm very balanced now. But it took me until I was in my probably, you know, until I was 40 before I figured all that out, you know. Yeah. So. Well, that's, that's awesome, you know. And uh, I commend you for... For your accomplishments, your hard work, and uh, you know, keeping the the tradition going in your your family, and uh, you know, keeping the music alive. So, uh, you mentioned that you you know, hopefully that once all of this uh, COVID madness is is done with it, uh, we'll be able to see that uh, Sinatra show uh, on Broadway, and uh, you know, you'll be back into the. Uh, back into the lounges and the stages in uh, Vegas. But uh, in the meantime, if people want to get in touch with you, they want to see what you're up to, uh, what's the best way for them to connect with you? Uh, probably the best way is just through Facebook. You know, I'm, I'm uh, Daniel Falcone or my music page, which I probably should update more often is Dan Falcone uh, through there. Also santafeband.com is a cool site where we have our, you know, our records and things, and you'll see where we're playing if we're playing. Um, I don't have a website. I never did any of that kind of thing. So, you know, I, 
I don't have that way to get in touch with me, but yeah, through Facebook or, or whatever, you know, I'll kind of keep people updated as, as things progress here and we get back working again. And Santa Fe uh, got a new release coming up anytime in the near future. Yeah. You know, Jerry Lopez told me just the other day he wrote, I think he's written six new songs during this. So we had, I think three or four already done that we've been playing in our rotation that we hadn't recorded yet. We just recorded a Jerry Hay wrote us a horn opener. So like in our shows, every show we open with just a acapella horn thing, six horns. And we have four or five or six of them that have been written that our guys have written, or we use um, the horn heads. We have one of theirs. That right. we use. Um, and Jerry, when he came to see me with Celine uh, as a gift, it was so kind. He, he wrote an opener for, for the Fat Teddy Horn. He gave it to me. So we just That's recorded awesome. it remotely. We're going to re-record it, you know, in a studio because this is a little, you know, it's a little tough to do it that way. Right. But we're getting ready to make a little video for it, put it out. And uh, and so we'll, we'll have that on the album too when we re-record it. Uh, so yeah, I think I think probably, hopefully in the next year, we'll have a new record out, which would be okay. great. Record. Yeah. yeah, I know, man. It's like, I still say that too. A new digital download, whatever. Yeah, yeah. At least you didn't say eight track. So. <laughs> I still have a gazillion cassettes, man. Yeah, me, yeah, me too. All right, well... Uh, again, folks, if you if you have not listened to Santa Fe and the Fat City Horns, you need to do that. You need to do that right now. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you can hopefully get down to Las Vegas once everything opens up, go check Danny out. And um, yeah, come yeah. see Lady Gaga, man. That is it's an unbelievable show. She has a it's called Jazz and Piano. And she does all great American songbook tunes. She even does Lush Life. And oh, man. Only- I mean, I'm telling you, this girl is unbelievable. She is incredible. 6,000 people, she'll sing Lush Life, and not one sound. I mean, not a glass clinking, not somebody exhaling. It's pure, like, she has them, you know, and it's incredible. I mean, who, who could do that nowadays, you know? Yeah, yeah. Who could, yeah, who could sing something like that and, and not lose the crowd? You know, she captivates them. It's, it's amazing. It's an incredible yeah. show. I have to admit, you know, when she first came out, I was uh, a little turned off by her and kind of wrote her off. And then I, I kind of started listening to her a little bit more. And I saw her do a few performances where she did some standards. And I was like, that girl can sing. Yeah, and, well, I was the same way, man. I thought uh, she's like a female David Bowie. She doesn't have any, but she doesn't have talent. I used to think all that. And then once we did a rehearsal and she came out and sang, holy goodness gracious. I mean, that girl's got more talent, more chops more pure ability than just about anybody I've heard in a long time. And she wants to be a jazz singer. Like that's her goal. Like she doesn't, I don't think the pop thing really appeals to her as much anymore as it is the jazz stuff. She really wants to be a jazz singer. It's pretty cool. Oh, cool. I hope I can catch that show. So uh, actually I I hope that once everything opens up, uh, my wife has been bugging me to get to Las Vegas at some point. So come down, uh, hang out with you and some of the other, some of the friends I have down in that area and we'll have a, have a nice hang. A oh, yeah. Yeah, a we'll real do a barbecue. Hang. We always yeah. do a barbecue. You know? Oh, now yeah, you're talking. Yeah. Now you're talking. All right. Well, Daniel, thank you for your time. I appreciate it, my friend. And I'm looking forward to uh, us getting to know each other, you know, even better. Uh, Yeah, me too. Hearing some more stories. And uh, for those of you who joined us, thank you so much for your time. And as always, peace and slide grease. We're out. Peace.
Hey, thank you so much for hanging with us today. This podcast is all about creating connection through our mutual love for the trumpet life. I hope that you learned a few things about today's guest and had some laughs along the way. Don't forget to give us a review. We love those five-star ratings. And please share this podcast with your friends. We want to see our hang grow for show. Have a suggestion for a future topic or a guest? Hit me up at thetrumpetgurus at gmail.com. Our opening theme was written and performed by Lexi Signor, and all other music comes courtesy of The Greatest Funeral Ever. So in the words of W.C. Handy, life is like a trumpet. If you don't put anything into it, you don't get anything out. So go out there and let your trumpet sound, and I'll see you at the next hang.